Before we continue in our worship through the preaching of God's word, I invite you to join me in a prayer of confession. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, again, we thank you for the privilege to gather. Um, you call your people to assemble ourselves. Thank you for this morning's uh, study on our corporate gathering and um, your sweet and sovereign mandate upon our lives in that regard. Uh, we are a very much groomed in a individualistic culture, uh, self-aggrandizing culture, a culture of uh, selfishness and pride, and we are prone to wander. So we thank you for the, the soothing balm of your word and all these particular matters and um, help us to be thankful that you gather us, you command us together for our good and for our nurturing of one another and for our worship and our corporate praise of you, our holy God. We ask that you would um, continue as you have promised. And we ask really at, at, with the hearts of thanksgiving, knowing that you are a God who keeps your promises. But we ask as an offer of praise in, in every sense of the word uh, that you would uh, fill our hearts more and more so with your worth. Um, mend us where our ways uh, have been soiled by sin and the temptation of this world. And restore that intimacy that our sin um, breaks, that fellowship that our sin breaks with you, that uh, the intimacy that is removed. Um, our hearts are grieved. We hate our sin and we want to confess it aloud to you corporately together. Um, make us more mindful of our, our sin and more diligent in pursuing righteousness, knowing that um, it brings sweeter fellowship with you. We uh, desire this. This is our heart's desire. Hear our cry. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we'll be uh, picking up in Acts chapter 24. And we'll look at the first nine verses. There's not a really good way to divide up Paul's, uh, the accusation here that's coming uh, to Paul and uh, his, his defense. So we're gonna, I'm going to try to take the first nine verses that really deal with the accusation. But the title of this morning's message is simply Paul before Felix. So in context here, we'll find Paul now going on trial before Governor Felix. So that's where we'll be in context. And we'll talk a little bit about um, uh, how that has transpired and leading up to that. But let's, let's just look through the first nine verses that read through them together. And then we'll try to set the context here and look at the accusation this morning and maybe a couple of uh, sub points off of the accusation brought against Paul there before Felix. So if you will, look with me the beginning in chapter 24 and we'll read through the first nine verses. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders with an attorney named Tertullus, and they brought charges to the governor against Paul. After Paul had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying to the governor, since we have through you attained much peace, and since by your providence reforms are being carried out to this nation, we acknowledge this in every way. And everywhere, most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness. But that I may not wear you any further, I beg that you grant us, by your kindness, a brief hearing. For we have found this man a real pest, 
and a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And he even tried to desecrate the temple. And then we arrested him. We wanted to judge him according to our law, but Lysias, the commander, came along and with much violence took him out of our hands, ordering his accusers to come before you. But examining him yourself concerning all these matters, you will be able to ascertain the things of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the attack, asserting these, <coughs> asserting that these things were so. Now, again, Acts in general, but particularly this little section of Paul's trials and the Holy Spirit that was uh, uh, divinely inspired the scripture writers has taken time here uh, in this back section of the book of Acts to really bring us through all of Paul's trials and kind of walk us through the details there. Now, unlike, say, the book of Hebrews, uh, which is a very didactic or a very teaching oriented book where we see much profound, deep doctrine just layered all through it, Acts is more of historical narrative. Uh, certainly there are precepts and doctrines and uh, um, principles always scattered throughout uh, the book of Acts, but it comes to us by and large in historical narrative. This uh, last few chapters are, are, you know, 23 through 25 particularly, when we deal a lot with his trials are really steep in just the details of the narrative. So we don't see a lot of doctrine. And so I wanted what to, to remind you again, just by way of trying to, to gather us in and see the flow here as we look at, you know, a detailed telling. Again, the Holy Spirit takes a lot of time here in leading the scripture writer to take us through these trials. So there's much for us to learn, although it's a lot of just, uh, again, retelling of what has transpired. But there are principles here. And remember, we've tried uh, to hang on to one large spiritual reality that we see here, and that's God using providence, right? His providential care over these issues. So we know God's providentially guiding these realities, but he's doing so, he's doing so through circumstance here, right? To just the basic circumstances of all that's transpiring in Paul's life. God is using to bring about his will and all these issues, and for us to see that, and for us to see it really the bringing about the good for Paul and ultimately good for us as we look back and track these things and also layer that into our hearts and our way of understanding and thinking as Christians, as we walk um, uh, in obedience to God in our particular circumstances of life. So we see providence here, the providence of God, not necessarily a lot of miracle work. Now I want you to see there's a little transition here at the back of the book of Acts, right? In the men's group, when we met uh, uh, last Friday, we talked a little bit about the reality of, of continuationism, cessationism, and certainly we are cessationists here. That's what we hold to. That's how we understand God's word to be laid out before us. That's what we teach. Um, and I'm going to suggest to you this morning, you're going to see the beginning of that right here in the book of Acts. Uh, the early part of Acts, we saw miracle after miracle, right? I mean, obvious, overt miracles in the life of Paul. And Paul was brought about and actually moved. You know, you think about the uh, the, the, the earthquake and, the, and, and Paul's uh, chains being broken off, miraculously there in the door, broken open at a specific uh, way in a specific time in this miraculous 
intervention by God to free Paul. Um, and here we find Paul being moved and transitioned, but it's uh, by much different means. So we're going to look at a more moving general overview of God's providence as he works through providence here in the backside of Acts. And we see that in Paul's life as well. So not a lot of miracles going and transpiring here that are very overt and obvious, but just God bringing about his will through circumstances. And we begin to see that as I'm going to suggest to you that we're beginning to see right here in Acts, the apostolic age begin to fade away. And now it's more like we experience in life, God working through our circumstances. And we see that Paul doing that, or excuse me, God doing that here with Paul. So make note of that. I would encourage you to, to, to kind of see that or look for that in the scripture and uh, see that flow there. Now, certainly, uh, I will say this. I, I believe that God works miracles today uh, fully. And, and this is why I say that. I believe that every Genuine salvation brought about by God's sovereign work in the life of, of fallen sinners all over this planet is an actual miracle. So I, I fully believe that. So, so we see that, but we don't see the overt working of miracles continuously throughout uh, various aspects and various degrees of life like we would in the apostolic age. We're starting to see that trans, uh, transition here. So I want you to just uh, be mindful of that and see if you can pick that up as well. I believe that is transpiring right here before us in the text. But now that we're working this historical narrative here, and God has, has, has placed this in here, and for us to really see these circumstances as he carries Paul along through these circumstances of life here, God is working through providence. Now, we get, we're getting to Felix. So let's just kind of try to regroup here and, and remember how... How we got here, okay? So Lysias, the commander there uh, in Jerusalem, has Paul in custody. He is, uh, has Paul as a prisoner for one reason, because there was a violent mob led by the religious leaders there in Jerusalem trying to kill Paul. Why? There were false accusations against Paul brought about by Jewish leaders from Asia Minor. Surely we believe them most likely to be the leaders there in Ephesus. Paul spent much time there, had a very fruitful ministry. Many Jewish people came to Christ there, and the leaders were fervently opposed to him, and they had tracked him down and followed him. So um, they've made these false accusations against Paul, saying that he has brought a Gentile into the temple, past the Gentile grounds and the outer courts into the temple, which is forbidden by Jewish law. And by the way, and I'll mention this a little later, but just hold this up front. By the way, the Romans recognized this Jewish law and also to keep order and try to prevent chaos and riots and uprisings within the Jewish community, Rome would also uh, make a law that would forbid or honor the Jewish law and forbid Gentiles from entering into the uh, beyond the, gen- the court of Gentiles into the temple. And if they did, it was punishable by death. So just, just make note of that, okay? But there's been an accusation. That's not what Paul did. That didn't transpire, but there's been an accusation. So in order to keep the mob from tearing Paul limb from limb, uh, Lysias has taken him prisoner. Paul gives his first testimony before the mob there, right? Right, at the, right on the steps of Fort Antonio. 
So he asked to speak. Lysias grants him the, the privilege to speak, and he gives his testimony before the crowd. He's brought into custody. The Sanhedrin is then ordered to come to Port Antonia. They meet in the basement there again to try to sort this out and try to understand what's transpiring here so Lysias can know what the charges are. Sanhedrin can't really come up with any real viable charges, but they're certainly angry with Paul. And so they want to tear him limb from limb still. And Paul gives another testimony there before the Roman leader and before uh, the Sanhedrin that's been gathered, the Jewish leaders. His second testimony. From that, Lysias finds himself in a bit of a pickle here, right? He can't find anything to charge Paul with in terms of Roman law. Paul has, has committed no crime. He's found out in the meantime that Paul's a Roman citizen, remember? And so now he's got to honor that. So he's going to be very careful here. So he doesn't want to wrongly incriminate a Roman citizen. He certainly doesn't want to act, you know, to have a Roman citizen put to death and that be that would be laid at his feet, and then you know, he may be charged for wrongful death. But at the same time, he's living in a volatile age there in Jerusalem, and there is uprising after uprising. I mean, Jerusalem is in turmoil. So he wants to pacify and, and appease the Jews, particularly the Jewish leaders. So he's in a bit of a, a, a pull here. So what does he do? Well, being the crafty commander he does, he's going to pass the buck. <coughs> that he is, he's going to pass the buck. So he says, look, I got to get Paul out of here as quick as I can, get this off my plate and get it on up the chain to somebody else. So late at night, he moves Paul out under heavy guard, 470 soldiers move Paul out halfway down to Caesarea where Felix is staying, where Governor Felix is staying. And then he brings a lot of his troops back that only for the purpose of something arises during journalism, something is found out about this and they're going to be there to squelch the uprising. This is this a tense time. So he leaves a few of his soldiers with him when they make it halfway down and then they take Paul all the way into Caesarea. So that's where we find Paul now. And now he's laid at the feet of Felix. Lysias is kind of like this back up at Fort Antonio. It's like, whoo, man, got rid of that one. So we're going to lay that at Felix's feet, and we'll see that Felix is going to try to pull the same uh, trick himself. So that's what brings us to this point. And he's ordered now, Lysias has ordered the Sanhedrin to go down uh, to Caesarea and to make their case and for Felix to judge. Okay, so they've arrived. It's been five days. And by the way, in those five days, so Paul rode down on a mount uh, from Jerusalem. So he didn't have to walk. And now he's staying in the castle, right? The Praetorium, Herod's old, old castle that he built for himself. So he's kind of living in luxury. So he's waited there five days. As a matter of fact, he'll be, for the, he'll be there for two years, uh, waiting ultimately to see Festus, who will uh, replace Felix. But we'll get, we'll get there in time. So he'll be there for two years. So Paul's kind of got a, a plush little, little you know, place to stay. He's, he's, he's been beaten, battered around, and God's just given him a little a little little reprieve here, just a little, a little kindness of God's providence to be staying in this plush place. Still, the times are tense. Uh, certainly, I'm, I'm probably, Paul's mind is spinning, you know, there's, there's um, uncertainty as far as what's going to happen, but he knows one thing, right? He's going to go to Rome. So that's settled in his heart. The Lord has met with him and encouraged him. So look, this is not, your time is not up. You're going to go to Rome. You're going 
again, to preach before more Gentiles, and you're going to preach before kings. And so he's encouraged, and now he's just giving him a little reprieve, and he's staying in a plush place, kind of like, you know, driving all the way back from Gastonia after kind of a little bit of a stressful day, and you get cake pops with all your brothers and sisters. I know, I'm sorry, I'm obsessed with that. I can't let that go. And so, you know, God does that sometimes. You just get that little, you know. So that's what Capole is. He's just, he's hanging out in a really kind of plush place here, uh, but still times are tense. So the Sanhedrin arrives. It's been five days. They arise, and look with me there in the beginning of first one. I just want you to see the accusation here. So we'll look at the accusation in verses one through nine, and I'm going to try to hang some principles on this, some application for us as we think about um, Paul in this situation. We're not going to get to his defense. We'll see that, Lord willing, later. But I want you to see Paul's innocence. This man's life is blameless. That's going to set up all the accusation. The accusation is false. There's one reason. Man, if they could hang anything on Paul, they would have done it, right? This guy's trouble for them. Trouble with a capital T. If they had anything on them, man, they would have, they would have, they would have got in there and they would have just laid it, laid it out and just hammered that thing. But there's nothing on this guy. So we're looking at bogus, false accusations that are easily dispelled. If anybody want, if anybody's concerned here, and there's one reason for that. Paul is blameless, and that speaks volumes to us as Christians how we live our lives and how we live our lives. Uh, consistently when it's going good and when people are mistreating us because Paul is being mistreated. And scripture is full of warnings for us that as Christians, by and large, it doesn't mean everywhere, all the times, all Christians in every situation, it's not this overwhelming one rushing volume of reality for every Christian, but through your Christian walk, you are going to, by and large, experience mistreatment just because you're a Christian. People are going to mistreat you. They're going to make false accusations towards you just because you share the gospel of Christ, just because you claim it to be exclusively true, objectively true, binding on not only you, but them. So it's coming. Certainly, we if, if we've been, you know, those of us here that have been Christians for any point of, you know, any any time in our life, uh, a number of years now, uh, thanks be to God, we, we know this. There may be some ebb and flow with that, but it's always there. It's always coming. And our blameless lives before these accusations, because it's a grand opportunity for us to just fly off into the flesh. Well, how dare them? I want you to learn from Paul here. He never does that. Never. He is blameless. And these false accusations just drip off of this guy time and time again because of one thing. He's blameless. I want you to hold on to that. We're just going to watch that lay out in God's providence here. So that's what sets this up. That's what sets the... the, the um, absurdity that you're going to see in some of these some of this language and part of this text uh just the fallenness of man but paul shines brightly through this as the accused and he does so because he's blameless so hold that in your minds and then we'll look at some of the accusations 
But Ananias comes down with some of the elders. Ananias, the high priest, and some of the elders come down. They have an attorney with them, so they bring a lawyer with them. Uh, his name is Tertullus. Now, that's a Greek name, or excuse me, a Roman name, um, but he's probably a, a Jewish fellow, and he is a very uh, slick professional orator. That's what he is. Uh, scholars will say that he's steeped in Latin, and when we see his, his language translated, his, what he speaks uh, to uh, Felix here, just the nature of it looks like it's Latin translated into Greek. So he's kind of a high scholar, and he's, uh, he, he's uh, a very slick talker. Okay, so he's going to come down. He's going to make the case. They've hired kind of a he's so he's a professional, you know, hitman. This guy's going to come down and make the case against Paul. He's he's convincing. He's what you might think of as one of those great trial lawyers. And he finds just the right guy to make his case to because. Unlike Paul. Um. Felix is, is not a man of honor. He's, pretty, he's a pretty uh, sleazy character. He's not a man of good character. And he's ripe to be bribed, and he's ripe to fall for flattery. And that's what we're going to see here. We're going to see uh, Tertullus lay it on thick, all right? So after Paul had been summoned in, Tertullus is going to accuse him, and he's going to do so before Felix, the governor. So listen to the language there beginning verse 2. Since we have, through you, attained much peace, and since by your province reforms are being carried out for the nation. Verse 3, we acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness. Let's just stop right there for a minute. That is a big, fat, whopping lie. That's what we, we might say to our kids. Man, he told a whopper. I mean, that's not, it's not even in the ballpark. That's bad. So Felix is, again, a savory guy, to say the least. So this guy was born a slave. Uh, he was freed under Claudius and then kind of made his way up to the political ranks uh, in a very dubious manner, to say the least, by hook and by crook. And he found his way to the top. And um, I'll just say, in any culture, in any generation, there are sleazeball politicians that will find their way to the top. And I'll leave it at that. But this guy's crooked. He's bad news. He's an unsavory character. And power is seductive. Power is very seductive. Few men know how to handle it rightly before God. Influence and power can be very corrupting. And Felix had a lot of power at this point, and he used it badly. He was vicious. He used violence. He was happy to use violence. And he did so, and he governed that way. He governed by terror, and the Jews hated him. They absolutely hated him. Now, he rightly uh, uh, always was um, fearful about uprisings by the Jewish nation. And again, it's particularly volatile in this current context. So he's always fearful of that. And ultimately, 
he'll be replaced. He's that bad. This is how bad he is. He's replaced. You know who's emperor now in this context right now? Nero. There's a nice guy, right? So when you're so bad that somebody like Nero sees that you need to be replaced, you're bad. You're an awful governor. And this guy's just vile, violent, crooked, self-absorbed, evil guy. He rules with an iron fist, and he's, he's a horror to the people. He's not a servant of the people. He is a tyrant. So that's who we're going for, uh, before to make false accusations about the Apostle Paul. But he is still, again, he's a crafty guy. He's found his way to the top, so he knows how to work the system. But it's just a, a, a low life, and it always catches up to him. So he, his wife is a teenager, and it's a, a teenager that he stole from another king. And we'll, we'll see. We'll uh, we'll see her. She'll come up a little later. But he's just an all around bad guy, and he's uh, he has one thing here. That he's a little concerned about the Jews having a revolt. So he has the same problem that Lysias has. He knows he knows Paul's innocent. That's that's obvious. There's no Roman law that Paul has broken. He's going to see that. But at the same time, he wants to appease the Jewish leaders because he doesn't want problems there. The last thing Romans leaders want is some kind of uprising within their part of the empire that causes them trouble. So he's going to try to, he wants to try to find a compromise here. And like all bad, wicked leaders, self-absorbed leaders, uh, he doesn't lead well and he's indecisive. And so he's just going to put this off. That's how we're going to see Felix respond. He's just going to put it off, put it off, put it off. And ultimately, he's removed from office. But right now, Tertullus has laid it on thick. And do you think Felix, I mean, we don't see it overtly in the text, but do you think Felix uh, uh, likes this? Do you think he's falling for it? I mean, he knows it's a lie, right? He knows he hasn't done these things. The Jews hate him. He's made no reforms. This is He's just buttering him up. Why? Tertullus knows, Felix knows, Paul knows, the elders know, the high priest. Everybody knows this is bogus. So why do it? This guy is a brilliant orator. Best lawyer they could bring down. Why? It's simple. It's a fallen world, and we love flattery, don't we? Man, it's so easy to fall for flattery, right? Even when you know it's a lie. When you know it's a lie, you just do this one. <laughs> we fall for it. This is the same as true. So Felix loves this man. He's eating this up. That's right. That's right. I am so wonderful. And so he, he butters him up here real good. And then in verse five, he's going to speak about Paul. But why the buttering up? That's an interesting thing for us, right? We know it works. We know Felix loves it, but what does it speak to us? And he's going to, he's going to, he's going to set it up that way, and then he's going to go for the kill on Paul. Because he's not, he doesn't have any real charges. We just got to get Felix on our side. But you notice what he does? I want you to catch this. He talks to Felix in a matter, in describing him in a manner of a way that a king or a leader or a governor, what? Should behave, Right? Isn't that interesting? Isn't that funny? Why there? There is a right way. There is a proper behavior. 
There is a proper approach. There is a proper way to do things. Where is that standard? Where do they get that standard from? So here's how we can really butter you up. Here's what we can say to make you really feel good about yourself, although we all know it's a lie. And where do they go? Nobility, honor, brightness. By what standard? This is a way a leader ought to act according to God. According to God. And here we've got a guy that's wrongly accused, and he's living that out right before the mind. All the irony, all the hypocrisy. But it's an, it's an appeal here. It's an appeal to his pride and his self-absorption. But don't miss that. They appeal to him by saying, this is who you are. Here's, here's what you're like. And the way, what they're pointing to is a real honorable standard according to God's view. They're describing what a governor ought to be. So for us, just a couple of, of scripture here to kind of hang our hat on here as we think about that, how they got the ought where that ought came from, where that standard came from. Listen to God's word concerning character. This is a matter of character. You're looking at a man of character in Paul and other men that have small character, bad character, weak character, sinful character, and one shining light of a Christian man in the context. Look what God's word says about the character of a man or a woman. Proverbs 22.1. A good name is to be more desired than great wealth. Amen. Somebody. Favor is better than silver and gold. And by favor, we mean a noble life that is favorable to those around you. A selfless life, really. You have favor with the people. That's not that you're bought off or bribed or or, they're willing to accept a wrongful flattery. It's that you have good character. That's what gives you favor with people. And it's more uh, honorable than wealth, and it's better than silver and gold. First Peter 2, 15. For such is the will of God, that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. That's exactly what we see here. These men will be silenced. Felix falls silenced for two years until he's removed because he cannot make himself uh, uh, he cannot put himself in that decision to expose himself. So he just puts it off and puts it off and puts it off and puts it off. And he's finally removed. Your good character will silence the ignorance of foolish men. Know that. It may not seem like that. I understand. In our circumstances. It may not seem, it didn't seem like that to Paul here. That's exactly what God's word tells us. Character silence, the fool, silences the foolishness of men. What's Paul accused of here? Well, let's look at it. They're going to go on and kind of spell it out. And so Tertullus here continues in verse 5, and he says, We have found this man to be a real pest. So uh, the trans- what translate their, their pest is really um, not like a pest, because we might think of that a little more lightly than it's, t- than it's intended in the text. We think of a pest as just like a nuisance, right? Man, you're, you know, like, he's just like, God, that guy's just a pesky. You know, he's just a nuisance. It's more, it's a, it's a shortened version of pestilence. Mm. So, so really, because we could, you know, if we want to take it more literally, we would say that we would understand him saying, uh, this guy is a pestilence to Rome and to the Jews in particular. He is a, say it with me, plague. 
on the people. That's what's being said here. This guy is a plague. He's a blight on humanity. He is a, a, a threat to our thriving. He's just, he's, he's walking death among us. We must rid ourselves of this plague. That's the charge. This guy's bad news. He's trouble for all of us. He's a problem, and we need to get rid of him. What does he do? Well, he continues down in verse 5. He stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world. So you see that? He's like, hey, this guy's stirring up the Jews. Now, what, what's, what's Felix concerned with here? These, these uprisings, right? This, this revolt against Rome. So that's where Tertullius goes. Man, this guy stirs up Jews everywhere. And he's saying he stirs them up against Rome. That's, that's what he's implying. He's a troublemaker. He goes everywhere among the Jews, and he stirs them up against Rome. He's trying to cause riots everywhere. He's trying to cause revolts everywhere. You need to get rid of him. He's going to be a problem for you. You need to, you need to nip this thing in the bud. This guy is bad news. So, now, we have to understand here, you know, he's, this, is, this is insurrection. He's calling it insurrection and riots. This, is, this, this guy's, uh, this is what he's about. He's an insurrectionist. And we have to keep in mind, and Paul is not justified to be accused here. There's no way Paul can, is, is rightly accused. He's done none of this. So he can't be rightly accused of stirring up the Jews to riot. That's just not him. That's not what he did. It's not the truth. So what did happen? Who caused the riots? There was, there was one in Jerusalem just recently and, and almost another one right there in, in the basement of Fort Antonio. Who caused them? The Sanhedrin, right? The Jewish leaders, those representing, being represented by Tertullius here. They caused the riots. What did Paul do? Nothing. What was he doing? You remember back? What was he doing? He was in the temple performing a sacrament, a, a, a sacrimony uh, that was just exactly in line with the Jewish uh, customs. Nothing, nothing that was breaking any Jewish law, nothing that was breaking any Roman law. And there was no Gentile in there with him. Had there been, okay, now we've talked about the reality of the Roman law. So think with me. Had there been a Gentile in there with Paul, there was not. He did have a Gentile friends there in Jerusalem. That's true. No Gentile was with him. He was performing a ceremony, right? So he's basically going in and making payment on and performing rites of what? A Nazarene, right? Nobody goes with you to do that. You're going in as a Nazarene. Making a Nazarite back. So had there been a Gentile, hypothetically speaking, had there been a Gentile in the temple, that is against the law, and also the Romans would honor that. They would honor that with uh, uh, punishable by death. Who would be punished if that had occurred? Who should be punished under the law? Under the Roman law, which would Felix would have to rule on Who? Paul or the Gentile that was in the court? The Gentile. That's the one that's breaking the law. So, you know, if Brother Mark tells me, hey, hey, go, you know, Brother John, you said, give me a good idea. Let's just go, let's go there and rob the bank. Just or you know, go go down the 7-Eleven. It's just some candy out there. Now, Paul didn't say that. This is hypothetical here. But just say uh, that's that's what happened. And Paul said, yeah, yeah, you know, or said Brother Mark says, you know, we need to go in, you need to go in the, uh, in Walmart and just steal a bag of candy. 
But I'm the one that goes to Walmart and steals a bag of candy. <laughs> what am I going to steal? Bag of coffee? No, he said cake, cake pops. pops. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's too tempting. Don't go there. Um, <coughs> who's going to get charged for the crime? I am. I know I'm doing it. So in this sense, Gentiles are forbidden. I don't know if, it's a, if that's an illustration that equates for you, but I hope so. Gentiles are forbidden from being in the temple beyond the Gentile grounds. So if a Gentile is caught in whatever the context, again, had nothing to do with this. No one was in there, but we're one, which is what they're saying here. Were that to be true, the Gentile is then guilty of the crime and the Gentile is to be punished by death. Nothing, no, the conspiracy doesn't matter. There's no, there's no uh, conspirators here at all. They're just either you're in or you're out. If you're in as a Gentile, you've committed the crime. So it's very straightforward. So this is bogus to the nth degree what's going on here. But yet they're still flattering Felix. So that's the accusation. Now, in fact, the Jewish leaders are the ones stirring all this up. They're causing the riots. And by the way, they made the same kind of charge against somebody else. They're making against Paul. Does this sound familiar to you? The same kind of accusation has fallen uh, from the Jewish leaders before. Right. Yes. You remember Christ before Pilate? It's the same old song. Nothing new under the sun here. Nothing new under the sun. But Rome didn't care about these religious matters. What they cared about were insurrection. That's what Felix is concerned about. And there's just no insurrection to be had here. Now, that's a serious concern for these Roman governors. That's, what's, that's what uh, has pushed Lysias to, to the commander to move this thing on to Felix. And it's what's going to push Felix to kind of just back off and freeze. He's just going to try to put it off, put it off, put it off. But Paul is innocent here. That's what we need to understand. He's innocent. Well, Tertullius goes on, not only is <laughs> has this uh, plague going all over the place, stirring up uh, Jews everywhere, all throughout the, the, the Roman Empire uh, to revolt against Rome, but not only that, in verse 5 he continues, he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now, that's interesting, because they're not going to use the name of Christ, or they're not going to say anything about Jesus, whom they crucified, and that's the whole point, Right? <clears throat> That's where they have the trouble. Paul is preaching what? Jesus Christ, your promised Messiah, the resurrected one. And then that's where the bomb drops. The resurrected one whom you crucify. So you're denying the Son of God. You're denying your promised Messiah. You're guilty of denying the truth of Judaism. So all that Paul was doing here is, is living out and proclaiming what Judaism pointed to. So he's saying, and in fact, here Paul is saying, look, I'm a real Jew. I'm a real follower of Judaism because I'm following it to its promised end found in Christ. And my Gentile friends here are more Jewish than you Jewish leaders because they're following Judaism to its consummate end, found in Christ alone. You are false teachers misunderstanding the truth of Judaism, which I have seen in its completion in Christ. And I have preached to you and you crucified your Messiah. Now that's a problem. So don't even go to Jesus. 
They just say he's just ringling and ringling. Don't give him leader, right? He's a prominent. He's a prominent a follower of Christ. We don't hear that. He's a ring. What's his, we don't have bad connotation, good connotation. When you're a ringleader, you think they say something good about that guy or something bad. So he's a, he's a ringleader of this sect. So not Judaism, but now the sect. So he's taken and twisted. That's what I'm saying. Now he's twisted the truth of Judaism, which we hold. And he's, he, now he's a sect. He's an offshoot. He's a false teacher. So you've got false teachers who have crucified their Messiah, now accusing this genuine follower of Christ as being a false teacher of Judaism. I mean, how far off from the truth can you get a sect of the Nazarenes, right? Nothing of any value comes from Nazareth, right? <sighs> Nothing. <sighs> Nothing of any value comes from Nazareth. So he just gives them the Nazarenes. It doesn't give them Jesus of Nazareth. We're not going to speak about the truth of Christ, just the Nazarenes. And a sect, right? So why a sect? That's the claim. This ringleader is teaching a false religion. He's, he's, uh, uh, um, he's taking Judaism and he's twisting it into something else. And the exact opposite is true. They're taking Judaism and twisting it into something else so that they might continue on in their faithfulness to their own desires to be wealthy and prominent and powerful. And here's Paul genuinely following Christ, but they continue on the sect of the Nazarene. He's this ringleader here. So their teaching is distortion of of Judaism and his teaching is the truth, but they've tried to twist it. Now, Paul is not breaking any Roman law, and he's not distorted Judaism. He's innocent. He's actually preaching the fulfillment of Judaism found in Christ. So we have to hold on to that. He is innocent. So what's the application here for us? As we see Paul again, his innocence and the false accusations coming towards him. (coughs) So he's not a political revolutionary. He's not a Roman lawbreaker. What is he? He's a preacher of the gospel. That's what he is. Now, he did have a unique role, certainly. So there's a unique. He's an apostle of Christ. He's the, he's the, the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul is unique in uh, the reality of Christianity among the nations, reality of God and salvation among the nations. He has this point guy. And that's true. There's, a, there's much uniqueness about Paul. But we have a commonality with many commonalities, but certainly a core commonality with him. We, too, are preachers of the gospel. Now, not all of us are ministers of the gospel in the role of elder as teaching elders. That's true. But if we're genuine followers of Christ, we're proclaimers. We're teachers of the gospel. We're preachers of the gospel. We're obeying God and we're respecting fellow man. That's what we see from Paul. And we're not fearing fellow man. And that's what I want you to see here. Paul has no fear. He's not Guilty. There have been all kinds of heinous false accusations brought against him by very prominent men, very powerful men, very influential men. And he has no fear. Of course, he's been unsettled. Of course, he feels pain. Of course, he's, he has doubts. Of course, Paul's human. I don't, you know, I don't want to make him into something superhuman. But he is 
intimately following his God. God has given him a commission. He is following it in obedience. And he is preaching the gospel. And he is doing it with, he's doing winsomely with respect and honor to fellow man. And he just does not fear them, nor should we. We mustn't. And we can learn that from Paul. Here he is. All the cards, humanly speaking, all the, the deck is stacked against him. But Paul knows that his God has commissioned him. He knows he's going to Rome. So he's not even really, really worried about this at all. He doesn't know exactly what's going to transpire on the way, but he's going to Rome. Now, we may not have that much detail in our life, but we have a commission. And we have a way that Scripture teaches us to live that out. Live it out in obedience. Fulfill it. Do it. Trust God. Honor fellow men. And do not be afraid. Fear not. Have the testimony of an innocent man or woman of Christ. And there you can walk in righteousness no matter the consequence, no matter the circumstance, and fear not. So Paul had that. He had a testimony of an innocent man. And that gives us that encouragement. You know, sometimes our hearts wane. Sometimes we have doubt. Sometimes we we do fear. We know not to fear, but sometimes we do in, in a given circumstance. But the blamelessness of your life will rise up and be a means through which God will give you great courage in such times. Don't sleep on the reality of your blameless life. Pursue that as a Christian. That's Paul's ace in the hole here. That gives him courage. He's blameless. Strive to live that way. Pray to live that way. Matthew 5, 11 and 12. Look, it's coming. Okay? Face it, with, face it with a blameless life, no matter about the false accusations. Christians throughout all time are going to have false accusations brought against them. Face them fearlessly and face them blamelessly. And let God take care of the, uh, the circumstances. In other words, I don't want to make it too formal, but maybe I could use this language. Um, and it's not mine. It doesn't originate with me. It's been said before. But but concentrate on your duty. And sometimes duty in our in our culture that seems like a bad word, but it's not. We have a duty before God. We have a duty before one another. Our standard is scripture. So concentrate on your duty and leave the circumstances and the consequences to God. That's what Paul's good at, and we can learn from him here. Listen to Matthew five eleven. Let me bring you back to Matthew five eleven. This is just true of us as Christians. Blessed are you. When people insult you and persecute you. Do you get that? Now, that's counterintuitive to our flesh. That's exactly what Scripture tells us. You're blessed when the false accusations come. When the persecution comes. When the insults come. Blessed are you when you're mistreated for being a Christian. And and, and when, when the person comes to you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Now, there's the key right there. When you're lied about, when you're, when you're uh, 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 mistreated, when you're persecuted, when you're falsely accused, and all kinds of evil is brought against you because of Christ, then you're blessed. Wow. That is so counterintuitive. It's hard to get that out of our mouths, isn't it? It's exactly what Scripture teaches us. You are blessed when that is true of you. You are blessed. Rejoice 
and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. My goodness, can we see the long range reality of who we are in Christ? We are so bound to the snapshots of this puny, tawdry world. Oh, dear brother and sister, see the big picture. Live in the big picture. This is but a whisper. Live blameless. Live faithful. Trust God. And know that when you are persecuted, it is a blessing. See the big picture. Be a long-range Christian man or woman. For in the same way, they persecute the prophets who were before you. Nothing new under the sun, dear Christian. Nothing new under the sun. God is faithful. A faithful promise-keeping God. If others that have gone before us were blessed when they were persecuted, when you were persecuted, you will be blessed as well. Nothing new for the Christian life. God is a faithful, promise-keeping God. James 1, 2-4. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. It's part of the spiritual growth of the Christian life. It is good for our spiritual well-being is is good for us. So Paul again here is accused of violating Jewish law. He's accused of violating Roman law, but as he's also accused of violating Jewish law, certainly with uh, the, the, the the accusation there of being a, a leader, a ringleader of a of a Jewish sect. Um, so that's true. But it, and then it gets a little more profound here, though, as he continues as uh, Tertullius continues on in verse six. And he there speaking of Paul even tried to desecrate the temple. Now he's going to point back to uh, a false accusation of bringing a Gentile in. But then we arrested him. Now, did that happen? That's a lie right there, isn't it? Did they arrest him? No, what they do? They tried to kill him, right? That's not an arrest. So, uh, you know, a mob attack is not an arrest, that's an assault. They didn't arrest him at all. Who arrested him? Yes. The commander arrested him. Why? Why did he arrest him? To save his life from the mob of the Jewish slaves level the Jews that's trying to kill him. So it's, so it's just bogus. This is, look, this stuff will happen to you. The accusations will be absurd. Your job is to be faithful and trust the Lord. So here we go. And, and so let me just try to say this w- without bogging us down too much here. If you have um, uh, New American Standard, this is going to be in brackets. Does anybody, some of you, some, some Bibles may not have this in brackets. Uh, beginning and halfway through second, second sentence of uh, verse six, going down through first sentence of verse eight. That's bracketed. Some of your Bibles, it may be, some it may not be. Depends on what version you have. Uh, it's bracketed because that's in in the New American Standard, saying basically that some of the best, some of the oldest and the most um, widely spread texts don't have this. This one's close because a lot do. So there's texts that are older. That's a good. That's a good indicator that are missing these. Although some old texts the same date have it. There are texts that are that are very widely spread, distributed that don't have this. And some that do. Most cases and, and textual criticism 
That's not, that's not true. You know, it's just obvious. This one's a little, this is higher. So I don't know. I don't, that's why the brackets are there. It's missing in some uh, old manuscripts and some, well, first manuscripts. Um, if it's there, let me just read it through. And they would be talking about Lysias. And, you know, you need to bring Lysias down here and ask him. Of course, Felix never does that. But if it's missing, they're basically talking about Paul, saying, well, just ask Paul. All these things we've said about him, you just ask him. He'll tell you. Now, that would seem absurd on its face, but that could very well be the case because basically they're saying Paul's a flat-out liar. He's awful. All these things we've said about him is true. You just ask him, he'll tell you. And then when, he's, and then when, he, when he tries to you know, refute them and say, no, that's not true at all, they'll say, see, he's a liar. So it's the same old story. Now, if we're to read this as them telling this little lie about Lysias, because that's not how it went down with Lysias at all, they're kind of painting themselves a good picture, that could be true as well. It could fit right in the text. I just don't know. This one's a hard one to try to discern. I'm not sure because it could go either way. But if they say this, well, you know, what you need to do is get Lysias. He'll take the truth. That may be the case. But if that's the case, what we so we have it here practice, so we'll read through it. In this way, they would read that they're saying, you know, you need to go back and talk to Lysias. But they doctored this one up pretty good, too. So beginning in verse, uh, the, the second um, sentence there in verse 6, it says, we wanted to judge him according to our law. Now, that's not true. They're, they're actively beating them to death as, as the commander has to come in and, and take them away. So they're not, they're not planning to judge him according to the law. But, verse 7, Lysias, the commander, came along and with much violence took him out of our hands. So they're, they're saying there he wrongfully took them out of our hands according to our law. So they may be well using this. This could fit right in the text easily, so it could be the case. I just don't know here. But they say, so you need to get Lysias down here and reprimand him and then turn back Paul back over to us to judge under our laws, which they would kill him. So that may be the case they're making here. But in order to accuse him to come before you, by examining him yourself concerning all these matters, you will be able to discern the things of which we accuse him. So he's saying there, bring Lysias down. Again, historically looking back, we know Felix never did. He didn't do anything. So a little tricky part there. I don't know exactly which way could be the case. They could both work. So it's put in with the brackets just to let you know. And um, here they're saying that's that's uh, it doesn't show up in a lot of manuscripts. But verse nine continues on. It says the Jews also, those with them that have come down with them, also joined in the attack, asserting that these things were so. So nonetheless, they continue on with their false accusations. So Paul's accused of violating Jewish law here as well. So Roman law and Jewish law. And of course, remember, Rome enforced the law of Gentiles going to the temple. So it's a bogus charge on Paul either way. That was enforced by Roman law, and they would have taken that uh, up with the Gentile himself. So this even tried to desecrate the temple is bogus. Doesn't matter. But you notice here, they said he tried to. You know why they said he tried to? Because they have no evidence. So it's easy to make accusations when you say 
or a person tried to, then you're just implying something about them. So you just insinuated what you believe the person was going to do. The reason they do this here, it's a very slick little thing that, they, that you see in law cases. They have no evidence of Paul doing this. Zero. Paul is innocent. He's innocent. He's being very, very misrepresented and mistreated. And that's what we need to take from this. This is going to always be true of Christians. You need to see the hypocrisy here and accept it. You couldn't get a more trumped up circumstance here. And it's not unique to Paul. Paul's a unique Christian, but this reality is not unique to Paul. This reality is true of all Christians. And that's what we learn from this text. So did Lysias step in? Well, he did, but not because they were trying to rightly adjudicate uh, 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 Paul. He stepped in to save, save Paul. And so when we think about application here in these last few verses of this accusation against Paul, this false accusation, despite all of it, despite all the falsehood, all the false accusations, Paul is, again, blameless. And he expects to be mistreated. You see that? There's nothing that catches him. We're going to see Paul give his defense, and you'll see a little more in his life. Nothing catches Paul off guard here because he's prepared for that. And scripture prepares us for it. It's just we, we, we kind of, this is the ones we overlook, right? We just move on. But we can't. The Holy Spirit left this in here for a very distinct reason. And what screams at us is uh, the, the necessity of our blamelessness and the reality of false accusations that will come against us. And Paul expects it. So may we pray that we too will just expect it and not be surprised by it. We're surprised by it. That's when we cower from it. And that's when, when our, our testimony can be compromised and we can wither. We're certainly capable of it. It's not our strength, but we recognize these truths in Scripture so that we can beg God to give us strength in these same kind of circumstances that he promises to us in his word to be true for us as well. So like Paul expected, expect false accusations, expect them to be boldly boasted against you just because you're a follower of Christ. And let me encourage you there as you do expect it. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The context of 1 Timothy is not all y'all there in 1 Timothy. It's all Christians everywhere in every corner of the earth. That's the big all y'all. All y'all. First Peter 3, 14. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Remember that. Sound familiar? You are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation. And do not be troubled. Amen. Let your heart not be troubled. Dear brothers and sisters, let your heart not be troubled. Pray for a blameless Christian life and a faithful Christian witness and expect to be falsely accused. Expect to be persecuted. Expect to be mistreated. And that is a blessing. And carry the gospel faithfully. Let's pray.
Gracious Father, we thank you for our time here. We thank you for these um, few verses of, of Paul's of, of accusation against Paul, your man who is blameless. And we ask too that you would uh, give us strength and, and over, uh, oversee our lives and our circumstances in such a way that we uh, and attend to our hearts and then in such a way that we know that it is you. You are bringing about our circumstances. You are providentially working out the circumstances of our lives for your glory and for our spiritual good, our spiritual health. But we have accountability to you and one another in the midst of all of our circumstances that, uh, that sift to us through your sovereign hand. And we ask for strength. Oh, how frail we are. Oh, how weak and prone we are to wander. How frightened we can be at the least little peep. Um, you must stand us up. You must strengthen us um, and grant us faithfulness to trust you, to see uh, the, the false accusations as blessings and to be, and to have the courage to stand. It must come from you. We, we lay ourselves before you and ask for strength to have blameless lives and uh, fruitful um, uh, uh, stances before wrong persecution and wrong accusations that um, you would give us boldness and you would give us courage and you would give us strength to stand. We ask these things in Christ's name for our stance is a stance for your name's sake. And we ask that you would help us to stand well. In Christ's name, amen.